This is technically not a polybagel DSM episode since this diagnosis is not in the DSM, but it's in the 11th edition of the International Classification of Diseases, so we're going with it. My name is Justin Sinceri. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow trauma nerd, helping you understand and apply the science of connection to daily life. Welcome to episode 52 of the Polyvagal Podcast. If you're one of the super fans, stick around after the main topic. I have a few announcements and one homework assignment. But before I get into things, please put yourself first. I keep every episode as safe as I can. But just by the nature of the topics, you may experience some stuff come up. Take a break if you need to. This one we're talking about complex PTSD, so it's a pretty heavy one. And these are my personal conceptualizations about how the polyvagal theory connects to these diagnoses. I'm not suggesting you think the same way. This is how I'm viewing them in general, just as a starting point. This information is not meant to diagnose. If you feel like you may be experiencing symptoms of CPTSD, consult with a mental health or medical professional. I'm speaking in generalities, your specific situation, Diagnosis, treatment, and medication are entirely between you and your provider. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder. When I looked into this one, the first thing I was struck by was there's not a whole lot to the diagnosis. I found it early on. I I thought, this can't be it. And so I looked and looked and looked. And um, yeah, there's only six criteria, three of which pretty much fit PTSD. So three of which are only, the other three of which, I guess, are uh, are only what it takes to have the CPTSD diagnosis, although I think maybe four out of six of them are more unique, but at least three out of six, and we'll go over those. But yeah, a little struck by that. There's not a whole lot of complexity to it. Now, when you apply the polyvagal understandings, it does get more complex. I want to review the polyvagal ladder. Before we go into this, it's really important that we have a clear understanding of how the polyvagal ladder works. The polyvagal ladder is a metaphor from Deb Dana about how our autonomic nervous system circuitry is basically stacked in the body at the top of the ladder in our head neck face to connected to the heart is the ventral vagal social engagement system that's our safety state we call it the safe and social state below that in our chest area is the sympathetic flight fight state and below that in the gut is the dorsal vagal or shutdown state so safe and social sympathetic flight fight and shutdown. The way the ladder works is that we neurocept or we detect unconsciously these cues of safety and danger that either drop us down the ladder or bring us up the ladder. And it's a ladder, so we can't skip. We climb down from safety into flight, then fight, and then shutdown. But we also climb up. If we exist in a shutdown place, we have to go from shutdown into fight, and then flight, and then into our safe and social state. So we climb down, but we also climb up. It's a ladder and we can't skip. CPTSD was initially proposed by Judith Herman in 1992. She stated that in contrast to the circumscribed traumatic event, prolonged repeated trauma can occur only when the victim is in a state of captivity, unable to flee, and under control of the perpetrators. So this is not even the formal diagnosis yet, but there's some really important pieces here. When we go into shutdown, it's because we've neurocepted that we cannot run away and we cannot fight and that our life is in danger, so the body begins to shut down. So flight and fight are neuroceptions of danger, but shutdown is due to a neuroception of life threat. 
Herbin here is describing childhood uh, or traumatic childhoods, the prolonged repeated trauma where the child can't escape and they're under the control of the perpetrators, which are their parents, more or less, due to their childhood dependence on others. So, And we know that CPTSD is typically begun during childhood, and these are when major developments are happening, and when self-regulation is supposed to be beginning to happen, but self-regulation is entirely dependent on co-regulation early in life. I'm not saying it's if you don't get it, you're done for, but if you get co-regulation early in life, then your ability to self-regulate later on in life, it's a lot easier or smoother. We'll say it that way. We need co-regulation from safe others, especially parents and people in the home, caretakers. We have, we have, it's really important that these are safe people who can co-regulate, who are in their own safe and social state and giving these cues of safety. Without self-regulation, life becomes a lot more difficult. Because this individual who can't self-regulate, they're always in this sort of stuck state, uh, stuck defensive state. They're always in a flight fight place or a shutdown place, or they can get easily triggered to a defensive state. So without the ability to self-regulate, to ground yourself in the present moment, life becomes a lot more difficult. And I think we've seen that pretty much with all these diagnoses, right? Let's take a look at the diagnostic criteria for a complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's just one, two, three, four, five, and six. Number one, experiencing anxiety-producing visual or emotional flashbacks and vivid memories of trauma in response to triggering events. Now, number one here is not unique to CPTSD. This also is very closely or pretty much the same with PTSD. The triggering events on the autonomic state level are a neuroception of danger. And these triggering events or objects or smells or textures, these very subjective triggering events, they pass through any sort of conscious processing is very subjective to that individual. The reason for that is that the traumatic event for person A, even though it might be the same sort of event like a sexual assault for person B, the two experiences of those two individuals are going to be different in the context and the environment and who the perpetrator is. So the things that become triggering objects or smells or whatever it is from those events for person A and B are going to be subjective and very individualized to that person based on what they specifically went through. So that's what I mean when I say subjective. When we say triggering events, we're also saying that the what it's doing is triggering the stuck freeze energy and that is freeze is when we shut down while highly charged. So the sympathetic energy is active along with the shutdown uh, lack of energy or, or the shutdown system. That's the freeze energy. So that gets triggered because it's sort of laying dormant in the system. Or this person that's being triggered is going from their safety state down to a flight fight state. And But either path, it's a- accompanied by the visualizations of the event and the emotions of the event. And these emotions and visualizations are connected to the polyvagal state, which is, of course, probably connected to the traumatic event. So when they're triggered, it's triggering that state that they were in during the event. And when I when I hear from my listeners and my audience on Instagram, 
when they describe flashbacks, it's a reliving of the event and emotions and flight fight energy and shutdown energy. All that comes right back or freeze energy. So yeah, the emotions are connected to the polyvagal state. And then what happens is our brain attempts to make sense of what's happening in my system. Like I just went from safe to like flight fight and it's going to, these visualizations are going to pop in of like of the previous event because it's going to associate the previous event with what's happening now, even though it's not happening now. It's searching for an explanation as to why. Those details of the event, they get imprinted to the person and become cues of danger for the future. During the traumatic event, these things, and Peter Levine calls them the most salient aspects. So some piece of the event or the environment sticks out to that system and gets imprinted onto the person as really an adaptive way of survival, like... Because the next time that they're around that salient detail, it's going to trigger the, the the danger response. It's going to trigger the flight fight response to increase their chances of survival. Now, for human beings, what gets imprinted onto us are well, we have a whole bunch of stuff around us, right? So it it could be many many things. It could be a smell that gets imprinted onto us. Whatever's the most salient aspect, as Peter Levine puts it, to the traumatic event. Number two for CPTSD is going to extreme lengths to avoid environments or situations that are believed likely to provoke flashbacks or unpleasant memories. And again, this is very much PTSD as well. And yeah, of course, the person's going to want to avoid these very painful flashbacks and memories and feelings, right? Of course. There's already some level of sympathetic energy that is being used to avoid the even higher level of sympathetic energy. So that's an adaptation. There's a, a enough sympathetic energy to where we notice it and that causes us to change our behavior and adapt to that, that feeling that, that's popping up within us. So it's a behavioral adaptation to avoiding the greater sympathetic energy. Because without the safety system on, the sympathetic energy is it's just too much. And if we have the safety system on, we don't really have to adapt our behavior because we'll be able to tolerate the feelings that come along with dropping down the polyvagal ladder. But without that safety system, without that social engagement system, the vagal break, without that there, that sympathetic energy is just too much, and it's just a reliving of the experience. Obviously, when this individual gets triggered and they're dropping down their polyvagal ladder, it's not just the memory, but it's also what's tied to that memory. And the memory is a reflection of the state. It's a visualization of the state shift, which is based on danger cues from probably the external environment. But I guess also from it could be from memories in and of itself. But in this context, number two, it sounds like it's an environmental and external cue of danger or potential cue of danger that they are avoiding. Number three, chronic feelings of being unsafe or vulnerable to threats, even when external circumstances show no obvious signs of danger. This one could potentially be different than PTSD due to the chronic unsafe feeling. It's never ending, like it never goes away. With PTSD, the unsafe feeling might be in response to a trigger. With CPTSD, and I'm talking very loosely, I know, but with CPTSD, there is this chronic being in a stuck defensive state. And this could be any of the stuck defensive states. This chronic nature is outside of being triggered by a vague thing or a subjective thing. So it's chronic. It's always there. And let's drill down a little bit farther here. 
This is in particular due to self a lack of self-regulation. Now, someone with PTSD, there is probably a greater capacity to self-regulate or to reach the top of their polyvagal ladder and be in their safe and social state and make real connections with people and to actually be in the present moment and, and be themselves, right? But that gets very interrupted by, by things that are a cue of dangerous specifically to them. I think a very cliche example is that veteran who's just going along with their day and they're doing fine and they hear the car backfire and all of a sudden it brings them to this place, that sound brings them to this place of uh, being in a wartime environment or at least feeling like their, their nervous system shifts to what they were in during that wartime environment. And it brings these flashbacks and a very uh, dysregulated state in that moment. But otherwise that person might be more in a well-regulated place or it could be. But with CPTSD, it's always, it's chronic. It's always in a very dysregulated place. And this is due to their lack of self-regulation because they never really had that constant co-regulation from a safe other or a safe parent. Or there was a very mixed messages. There was very insecure attachment. There was not the ability to predict what the parent was going to do or say or how they were going to act. There was just these constant cues of danger. So there was this lack of co-regulation or consistent and predictable co-regulation from parents. And also, I think along with that, a betrayal of the trust that sort of implicitly comes from children to the parent. It's this like biological imperative that they have to trust parents to get their needs met. So there was this lack of co-regulation and betrayal of trusted caregivers, not just the lack of co-regulation. There is a, a very much a lack of safety in this person's life, a lack of trust, a lack of vulnerability. If anything, other dysregulated people are might be the norm for this individual. And yeah, that sounds like a pretty darn unsafe existence. I don't blame this person for feeling chronically unsafe. But it's not just because they feel unsafe, like something's wrong with them, it's because they're in a very dysregulated place. They're lacking the self-regulation. And if you lack the self-regulation, that means you can't get to the top of your polyvagal ladder and you're pretty much always in a stuck defensive state. And this brings us to number four. I mentioned that other dysregulated people might be the norm for this individual. So number four is a pattern of participating in unstable, dysfunctional, and unsustainable relationships. And like I said, number three, dysregulated others become the norm. And the way I think about this is like attracts like. People in their safety state will keep their distance from unsafe others. If you're in your safety state, you're going to pick up on those danger cues, that lack of vocal prosody. You're going to pick up on their, you know, that more monotone voice. If they're not able to smile, if their eyes are wide, people in their safety state are going to pick up on that and probably keep their distance. But people who are in a more dysregulated, defensive place, they're going to keep their distance from safe individuals because it feels uncomfortable. Being around those safety cues, it can be really uncomfortable. It can be awkward. Making eye contact with people can be weird for the, for someone in a more dysregulated, especially a chronically dysregulated, dysregulated place. So even though the person's safe, they might keep their distance from these people because it just doesn't fit. There's not a attunement there. And they might, not, they might not feel like they deserve it or that they, they might actually lack the skills necessary to be and function in these safer relationships. But let's look at this in even more detail. The polyvagal theory explains that neuroception is basically either healthy or unhealthy. 
That, that is, the ability to detect safety and risk in the environment can be healthy or unhealthy. When we exist more down the ladder in a defensive state, we perceive danger everywhere and we miss the cues of safety, or we, I think we could also pick them up and feel uncomfortable with it. But when, we're, when we exist down the ladder, our autonomic nervous system is prepared for danger, not social engagement. Okay, so this is, a, this is an issue of not there's something wrong with the person, like they're just broken. The issue is they're stuck in an autonomic state of being prepared for danger. And if you're prepared for danger, you're simply not prepared for social engagement. So even when they come across people who are in a safety state, they're more the CPTSD individual or the person who's in a stuck defensive state. They're ready for danger, not for social engagement. So this person has great difficulty in detecting safety or risk in others due to the number three, the chronic feelings of not being safe. And those chronic feelings of not being safe in number three, those are the stuck defensive state. What you're left with are dysregulated states attracting each other to get their basic needs met or to seek protection, to seek companionship or what feels like companionship or connection. But what they might end up doing is finding other dysregulated nervous systems and that other dysregulated nervous system might complement their own and it might work to the, both their advantage maybe. But what may end up happening is that the other dysregulated nervous system that they find might end up exploiting their own. So someone who's in a very shut down place and really dependent on others, if they find someone who's in more of a fight place, a very uncontrolled fight place, that person in their fight state is going to potentially find ways to exploit that person who's in a very desperate, disconnected shutdown place. The social engagement system of the CPTSD individual is underdeveloped due to their chronic traumatic life, leaving this type of external relationship pattern. But this lack of safety also reflects on their internal relationship pattern. That brings us to number five. Number five is negative self-concept defined by feelings of deep shame, guilt, and unworthiness. This person has very limited access to their social engagement system where feelings of positivity would live. Remember, CPTSD is a reaction to, quote, prolonged, repeated trauma in a state of captivity, unable to flee, and under control of perpetrators. If you can't run... If you can't fight, you shut down. These feelings in number five are all feelings of being in a shutdown state. Deep shame, guilt, unworthiness. There's like an impulse to become smaller, to curl up. This is the bodily impulse of shutdown and the emotions that come along with it. Per Peter Levine, shame is a biosocial thing. And I'll put a link to an interview he did where he talked about this and then Really, really good interview. But uh, shame is a biosocial thing. It serves a purpose on the social level and is felt in the biology. Not just It's not just a state of mind. Shame is not just a state of mind or a set of beliefs. It's something we feel in our bodies. But it, it's a biosocial thing. It does serve a purpose, such as with um, registries for sexual offenders. Yes, this is for public safety, but I think it also serves a function of really public shaming, right? Or think about there's a couple and one of the couple cheats 
So they break up. The friends that they used to share might say to the cheater, kick rocks. Like what you did was not cool. And the cheater, they might feel some guilt, but they also might feel some shame. And this that shame is something that's going to live inside of them and where they feel like they just kind of want to get smaller. These are ways that as a community, we can use shame to stop behavior. I don't know if you can plan these things out and have a regimen for implementing shame. I'm not saying that, but just on a biosocial sort of instinctive level, shame is used as a way of stopping behavior. But for the shame to be really effective, it needs to be repaired. People feel shame from these choices they make. And that might also be due to a community kind of cutting these people off. But for the shame to really be effective and to grow from it, the community has to repair it as well. The shaming of children through abuse is obviously a misuse of the biosocial component of shame. The kid didn't do anything wrong. The shame is not theirs, but it's inflicted upon them from the abuser. It's their, it's their shame. It's not the kid's shame. But kids internalize these things and that's the best they can do is they take the pain of others or they see their parents fighting and they direct it inward. They don't really have the individuation necessary, the sense of self, to realize that that's my parents' issues, not mine. If there's an issue in the family, it's they direct it toward the self. So when they're abused, they sort of accept the shame of the abuser, but it's not their shame, it's the abuser's shame. Shame needs safety to be undone. But like I said before, the community has a way of implementing shame, but it has to repair it. So shame needs safety to be undone. But the CPTSD individual potentially did not have actual safety. So the shame persists along with the shutdown from the traumas. They have to have actual safe people. They have to have actual co-regulators and they just, they don't have them in their life. So it persists. And now if, if one were to listen to the bodily feelings, not the emotions, but the feelings underneath the shame, it might lead them toward completing the bodily impulse of becoming smaller than coming out of that posture with the sympathetic energy as they climb the polyvagal ladder. Feelings like wanting to disappear, becoming physically smaller, tucking their head in, curling shoulders inward, or might be kind of like a hunched look that bodily impulse that kind of matches shame, right? Feeling inferior, feeling worthless, uh, self-loathing, loneliness, emptiness. There's a posture of collapse. Your gaze, your eye, your eyes uh, avert from others like you look away. There's like a wanting to hide and be smaller or disappear, like I said. The capacity to think is lower and you, ha- you have problems orienting to the environment and environmental safety. These are all like bodily impulses or feelings of shame. And if one can sit with those, if they have the vagal break necessary, the social engagement system necessary to sit with those, which is very, very challenging, they might be with those feelings, those impulses, and then allow themselves to complete those impulses and emerge out of that. And then the sympathetic energy would return. Not easy. I'm not saying go do it but it is a potential path out of this shutdown shame stuff. But before someone does that, they really have to have the self-regulation piece of it. The social engagement system has to be stronger. That safety system has to be stronger. Story fellow state as well. These are thoughts, um, thoughts of being unworthy 
or of self-blame or self-judgment. These, these are thoughts that are directed toward the self. And I think when we're in a shutdown place, story follows state. So it, it becomes very reinforcing of the shutdown state. And it becomes about having no worth, no purpose, no point, and lots of judgments about how the self is, well, not worth anything or, or incapable. But these thoughts are reflective of the shutdown state but they also reinforce the shutdown state. And what people do is they focus on the thoughts and not what's underneath them, not the polyvagal state of shutdown and what that feels like. We focus on the thoughts instead. And number six, poor emotional control that leaves sufferers vulnerable to fits of rage and frustration and bouts of paralyzing anxiety. Now, number six here, it sounds like the stuck freeze energy to me. Rage and paralyzing anxiety. Both of those have a high sympathetic charge, but it can be the experience of having that stuck freeze energy triggered. That stuck trauma energy turns into rage. When triggered, it turns into rage or even like a panicky, paralyzing anxiety. Remember we talked about that frantic energy, I think with borderline personality disorder. And it's the same thing here. That frantic energy, that stuck freeze energy. Paralysis is the stiff muscles, you know, like it's, well, it's the tense muscles that come along with immobilization. So the immobilization system is active, the shutdown system, but along with the flight fight system is active at the same time. That's paralysis where you're immobilized, but you're highly charged. Rage is that uncontrolled sympathetic fight energy that gets triggered, but it's that stuck trauma freeze energy that has more of the fight flavor to it. That out of control intense stuck energy indicates there's a weaker vagal break, which is, but the strength of the vagal break is entirely dependent on the strength of the social engagement system because the vagal break is not a separate thing. It's the influence of the social engagement system on the heart. It's the influence of the safety system on the heart. It keeps the heart, the heart beating at a calmer pace. So the stronger social engagement system the more control you'll have, well, unconscious control, but the more control you'll have over the over the heartbeat. With a weaker vagal break, the heartbeat goes up when triggered. It goes way up. I believe it was 20 to 30 beats per minute faster. And when the heart rate goes up, that sympathetic flight fight system kicks on. So if you have a stronger vagal break or a stronger social engagement system, the heartbeat is going to be more in control, even during times of distress. So, and this makes sense. This makes complete sense that the, this individual would have a weaker vagal break because they lacked co-regulation in early childhood, which left them with this underdeveloped social engagement system. So if you have an underdeveloped social engagement system, your heartbeat is probably going to be higher because there's less of a vagal break. And the body is going to be basically constantly in a defensive state. This diagnosis, the CPTSD diagnosis, is kind of all over the place, isn't it? And it really is representing a very dysregulated autonomic nervous system. There, there might be some stuck freeze energy here, and there might be a severe shutdown state, and it might possibly be at the same time. I think both of these things can exist. The last piece of this, it says, all six symptoms must be detected before a complex PTSD diagnosis can be made. Because CPTSD is often complicated by depression, anxiety disorders, borderline personality disorder, 
and substance abuse. These are all common co-occurring conditions with CPTSD. Mental health professionals will screen for such conditions once the symptoms of complex PTSD have been identified. You can probably see how this diagnosis can end up looking many different ways once one adapts their behavior to the defensive state. With borderline personality disorder, we talked a couple weeks ago about how the adaptation is to find connection with others. We talked uh, last week with narcissistic, how the adaptation is to find approval or admiration from others. In this one, it says substance abuse. But all of these, those three examples and more, these are all adaptations to the stuck defensive state. So CPTSD can, might be underlying a lot of other diagnoses potentially. Something else I'm wondering here is where is the dissociative symptoms? I'm, I'm surprised that there's not any indication of dissociative symptoms, uh, especially since there's a, a big, big element of shutdown here. Then there's obviously a, a significant disconnection from the true self just based on these six criteria or the truer self. So I'm, I'm a little surprised there's no indication of dissociative symptoms. But Polyvagal patrons, let me know what you thought of this episode. And also there's a couple of episodes dropping this week in or only through Patreon. I'd like to know what you thought about those as well. I got a few announcements. This episode completes the first year's worth of weekly episodes. There's actually been a lot more than that. We've done a lot of weeks where there was two episodes. There was some where there was three. Mercedes and I had done like a holiday gift where we had five episodes in a row all in one week. So there's lots of episodes, but this was the these are the ones that I numbered one through fifty two. Wow, that's a lot. Fifty two episodes. Uh, so it's been over a year, but this marks the first year's worth of numbered episodes. Polyvagal patrons, I got an announcement for you. Uh, there are too many episodes dropping per week for the at least the next couple of weeks. Um, listen to them right, right after this one in the exact same podcast player, as long as you subscribe to Polyvagal patrons in your podcast app. And then also for everybody, double check your subscriptions. Um, the narcissistic personality episode I didn't upload it correctly, so last week it was uploaded without a season number, and I fixed it show, so it should show up uh, no problem for you. But um, if you missed it, that's why. And here's your homework for everybody. Remind yourself that you're safe. Maybe now, maybe when you're at home if you're not at home. Maybe when you're on a walk. Just look around and remind yourself that you're safe. Look for safety. Look for, you know, allow yourself to be in the present moment just a little bit if you can, or a lot bit if you can. But consciously just look around, be in the present moment as much as you can, and remind yourself that you're safe. Just tell yourself, I'm safe. I am safe. All right, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've learned some new ways to connect with others or maybe even with yourself. Bye.